Hello, and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Obeska, and I am happy to announce that we have just been named to the top 40 social justice podcasts by Feedspot. So, hey, but in other news... Today, I'm speaking with filmmaker Hanadi Elian about her film from Jordan, Salma's Home. Thank you so much for making the time to meet me. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. I want to thank you so much for making the time to meet with me as well, because I absolutely love this film. It's such a wonderful, strong (laughs) female presence on screen. Your character of both Salma and Lamia are really stunningly well-drawn women. And I wondered, for you, was there a matriarch who really represented that to you and made you want to make this film? Sure. I mean, uh, I've, I've always been very inspired by women in general. And um, I, well, my mom is very inspiring. She's, uh, you know, she's a Palestinian refugee. She raised five of us and she managed to get, uh, you know, all of the degrees. She got a master's degree and have a full-time job, you know, like, a hardworking, uh, incredible, positive, a very positive attitude as well, you know. And I don't see these characters on screen usually, especially from the Arab world. Women are, you know, put in the victim box or the oppressed, the trauma, the whatever. And I'm not saying these stories do not exist. They, of course, exist. But there it, it's problematic when it becomes the only narrative out there when it's like mm-hmm. the only story you can tell uh so i took offense to that <laughs> I, t- I felt offended because i am an Arab woman and i'm not like all of these victims that have no problem so- solving skills or you know like no merit at all so yes so that was in my mind uh, especially for uh, Selma's character. Now, uh, I, it's not based on my mom. My mom is far more flexible than <laughs> Selma and open-minded. Uh, but uh, I'm, I mean the strength and the entrepreneurship uh, in her. Uh, for Lamia's character, I honestly, I, I'm, I'm not good with social media. <laughs> I don't know so much about it. I've seen people that I know, like uh, classmates or, you know, people that I've known professionally in normal settings suddenly become influencers and they changed uh, totally. I've seen that, but I wouldn't say I'm close to anybody who is an influencer to know so much about that uh, world. But I could imagine, I mean, as a filmmaker, I... it's hard to come up with stories, right? Because you're always up against this fear, this self-criticism, this, you know, everything that any story that you want to tell has been said before uh, in one shape or form. Why is yours special? Like you have all of these questions as a filmmaker. But then these content creators (laughs) get away with the most, you know, nothing like people get popular for like cleaning their houses, <laughs> like <laughs> they put the camera and, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> so I, I've always been fascinated with that uh, because I would imagine that they 
too are struggling with figuring out what should I put out there yeah. uh, and um, how, how do I appeal to uh, a bigger slice of, of society not much of like what what am I trying to say here you know yeah yeah that question of how do you balance popularity and content it's fascinating is a question for any filmmaker or any content creator certainly but what I love about your film so much is that it places this character who seems very outwardly superficial in this context that in a lot of other films would go more toward a poor oppressed women sort of storyline, as opposed to the women can figure things out for themselves. And I really appreciated that about your film. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's um, the, the, the message behind this film is really up, up to the viewer. Right. So I don't want to be spoon feeding people what to think or anything. And it's a two way street. So uh, but you hope for certain things. Right. You hope that it will resonate with people in a certain way. However, I'm really not interested in one dimensional cookie cutter characters. Right. So I want them to be flawed and I don't want to treat it with with anything less than complexity because characters are human beings right? Or based on them. So they need to have flaws and good parts and balance and sometimes a little unpredictable because we are unpredictable. One thing that's missing from a lot of conversations in the middle of American society, at least, the prevailing narratives are all about Islamophobia and so forth, which has two sides to it because you either spend all your time trying to counteract the prevailing narrative that the Arab world and the Muslim world are related to terrorism automatically in some way. And there's also on the other side, this constant prevailing narrative of inspiration porn about Islam and the Arab world. And then there's also, can we just get back to Muslims eating ice cream and being happy? And Kumail Nanjani said that at the Oscars a few years ago. And I love that quote. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, okay, so I I find the stereotypes so ridiculous and they do have real life repercussions, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like Arabs and Muslims are angry for the way they're portrayed because they have fragile egos, right? It's because it affects our life, you know. In, in a very real way with, you know, the way they're treated, the way policies are put around them, the, it affects real, real uh, everyday life. You know, there was, so uh, you're familiar with like uh, Aladdin, of course, right? Yes. And the city they're in is, is called Agraba, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a few years ago, there was an article in the GOP that said, 30, I think 30 or 40% of GOP voters were okay when polled. They were okay with bombing Agrabah, the fictional place. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I mean, it's a fictional place, but somehow they were okay with it because, you know, it sounds Arabic, it sounds Muslim. So that's a very real thing, right? So the less you see the other as human, or because in that in that 
in the in that film it starts with saying like this is agrab or whatever it's barbaric but hey it's home so once you put the label to like this is the barbaric land or mm-hmm. you know uh it's easier not to empathize you know it's easier to not care as much about what they go through so um i am aware of that i understand that i i don't know if i as a filmmaker want to be holding the burden of representation on my own and i i mean no I one should have to bear that on their own <laughs> under any set of circumstances yeah but we, i mean so i figured i'll do what inspires me what i feel is personal to me although uh, a lot of a lot of the gatekeepers of the society of the industry sometimes do not want to hear that story sometimes they want to hear uh, the sad story it gives them some uh, i guess importance or they feel like they are contributing to a bigger cause uh whereas in fact it is somehow demeaning yeah when you do not allow certain uh, sort uh, different types of narratives based mm-hmm. on culture or uh, religion or yeah race <laughs> absolutely and it is one of those things where obviously culture is impacted by film and film is impacted by culture but the way that the two feed into each other so that all the representation that you see is filtered through this one lens of oh we have to feel a certain way about everything that these characters go through as opposed to having the freedom of being able to tell a sweet story about women surviving together yeah what if i wanted to do a romantic comedy <laughs> like yeah. you know what i mean yeah. like, i don't feel like it but but i would like the option <laughs> i would like to have the freedom to tell whatever i want to say. Yeah. For you shooting in Amman. This was shot in Amman, correct? Correct. Yes. So, how is the film industry in Amman at this point and what was the culture like for film there? Yeah. So, in Jordan, there's a lot of different entities trying to cultivate and nourish filmmaking, but I can't say there is an industry yet. So we were to count all of the feature films coming out of Jordan ever. I think there's going to be less than 10 maybe. Yes. Really? <laughs> yeah, feature films. There is TV and there is documentary and shorts of course, but feature narrative I don't know. I, I don't think it's more than 10. Uh, in in general. So I would say it's very tough to pull off a film over there. it's very tricky in certain ways but at the same time because there is no industry there is enthusiasm and love <laughs> around the filmmaking industry so people really wanted to see this and that's how we were able to make the film because everyone wanted to be part of it whereas if i was to say the same story in la for instance mm. people don't want you to make a film there <laughs> they're done they're sick of it they don't want to see any more productions whereas in jordan because there aren't many so it was much more supportive in that sense when i talk about the film industry in jordan it's really always a fascinating conversation because you have both simultaneously all the people who are choosing it as a foreign location to shoot on 
but then you also have so few authentic stories that are actually shot there. Yes, so that's what I meant when I when I said less than ten. It's the authentic mm-hmm. stories uh, that are from the region. There are many Hollywood projects uh, filmed there. In fact, while we were filming, they were filming a big Hollywood story that took away all of the crew. So it was even harder yeah. to find crew. Uh, there are these, but it's not really... Uh, uh, the majority of the time, it's being used to double as Mars or double as, you know, it's not about the Jordanian society. And it's certainly not including Jordanians on the authorship level above le- the line. You know, it's mm-hmm. not that... So it's great for Jordanian crews to get the experience, of course, and uh, be part of a bigger project. Absolutely. I'm just talking about a non-Hollywood, actual real Jordanian project. Yeah, there are so very few. I think the only one I've seen in recent years is Steve. Mm, Yes. And that was an Oscar nominee for good reason. It's a fabulous film. But... How do you balance coming in as a female director in a society that doesn't really have a culture of filmmaking? Yeah. So I started, I started film in Jordan. I've started in, uh, you know, short films that I've done in film school. And these gained some traction and uh, some momentum that made me sure that I want to pursue this career. Uh, but then for a long time, I was doing commercial content and um, commercial content is uh, basically at that time, this is around the year 2010, 2009, around that time, social media was picking up and a lot of brands needed uh, content for their social media pages other than photos. And that's where I came in. So I would go to different brands and film things for them that looked much better than what they're used to, you know, uh, and started doing that for a while. And I made, I started a company creating all of this content and we managed to get really big clients as well. Um, So I would say my, my in, into the industry was uh, was through that uh, while having short films in the background uh, happening. You know, sometimes when, when, when an industry is so established, there are more defined roles because of this establishment. Mm-hmm. Whereas being part of uh, an industry that's just starting these biases are not rooted yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not, it's shallower. So I wouldn't say, uh, nobody ever said to me, you can't make a film because you're a woman, for instance, or nobody ever denied me something because of that. Instead, I, I thought I always got more respect uh, because, of, because of it. Uh, but that's my personal experience filming in, in Jordan. Sometimes, um, I mean, you never know what's happening in whenever you apply for a grant or a fund or a festival. You don't know the conversations behind. So, and I don't assume anything or speculate or because, I mean, that's 
that's useless. <laughs> it's like n- n- something that's never gonna, and I'm sure you can relate to that as a filmmaker because a lot of the, re- the decisions are outside of your hand and it's a crazy industry. So um, I prefer not to overanalyze or dwell over things that didn't go my way, but rather look forward to the next thing and stay active and, and uh, excited about the next thing. Yeah. Absolutely. On my laptop there, you can't see it, but on the other side of my laptop, there's a sticker that says to keep your balance, you must keep moving with a bicycle on it. And I think in filmmaking in particular, that's certainly true. It's really fascinating to me, though, hearing you speak about the issues between working in an industry that feels nimble, even compared to the American system where there's so much machinery all the time that kind of weighs itself down and makes it harder to change. I wondered though, what was it like to cast on this project? How did you select these wonderful women? Uh, Casting, casting. Yes. So this story is character driven. And I, up until that point in my career, I, I assumed or I felt that I came from a very strong visual background. Uh, mm. My dad is a painter. I thought I was going to be a cinematographer at one point. I, I thought that that was my calling uh, before becoming a director. But then I started working with actors and I realized my work can like, change <laughs> totally, improve once I learned how to speak with actors and direct them. Uh, So I wanted a project that would allow me to practice as well as learn and uh, work on character development. That's why I I wrote it to be character driven. Now, when it was time to casting, that's also a big part of uh, the thing because you need to find people that you can work with, but at the same time, amazing talent that would, you know, personify the character, you know. I was very lucky to have already known Selma, the, the, the actress Juliette Awad. I knew her all my life and I had the family connection. Uh, she's friends with my family. Uh, so once I approached her, she said yes, and then read the script and was sold on it. She was, she was okay. And that sort of helped me build the rest of the team because I knew I had Juliette with me and she's well known and, you know, people, people refer to her as the legend. You know what I mean? Like, so I had, I had Juliette. <laughs> so I'm, I was very happy about that. Uh, Rani Al-Kurdi, uh, the one playing the character of uh, Lamia, I had no in. And I, uh, I've known about her for a long time. What I like about Rania is that she, uh, there is nothing cliche about her. She's always doing something different across different mediums. She's a singer, she's a presenter, she's an actor, you know, she's always doing something different. And one one fear that I have in my head uh, approaching actors is that they might be doing the same role that they did before relying rather than find the voice of the new script. They might have their own uh, easy outs, mm-hmm. you know. But I knew I'm not going to face that with Rania because she never does the same thing twice. 
it's not like she's doing the same character in different stories, you know. She's always doing something totally different. So that excited me. That made me feel like this is going to be like a, an experiment, <laughs> but not so scientific because the output can change at, at different times. Um, and then uh, Samira, Samira, I reached out to her. Uh, I've seen her work, Samira playing the role of Farah. <clears throat> I've, re I've reached out to her uh, and I, um, I I asked her to come audition. And in the audition, she killed it. I had a scene that was actually in the movie, a scene that was actually of the movie between her and her husband. And she, like, she knew what that felt. You know, she knew how you could love and, and be mad at somebody at the same time. Uh, so... Yeah, that was that was casting Samira. That's wonderful. And that particular character that Samira plays spends a lot of time with a lot of front-facing qualities, but then a lot of hidden qualities as well, because she's hiding her alcoholism from her family as much as she possibly can while theoretically being the breadwinner and the more together member of the family who has managed to keep her whole family afloat and take care of childcare and a job. And one of the things that I love about this character, though, is how you are able to balance out the pieces of who she is, both within the script and within the performance. I think Samira does a really beautiful job of making her alcoholism totally understandable and totally relatable, while obviously being a real authentic problem. Yeah, so the, 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 the character of Farah um, in, in the A storyline is like, a bargaining chip that the other two women are using, right? So they're pulling her here, pulling her there. But I didn't want her to be just that. I want her to have her own life too. So started building all of these different, different layers. Sometimes we see, you know, families on a very superficial level, and it seems like they have their life together, you know? Like, oh, she... She, she's married with a child and uh, has a job and is close with her mom. Like, it sounds all nice, but sometimes it's very fragile. That, that veneer that people put out is incredibly uh, uh, fragile. So I wanted to show that. And at the same time, again, I didn't want her to be a saint or a victim or any... Mm -hmm. Uh, one side. Uh, so I also wanted to show how hard it is to live with her, you know, because these couples, if you know, like married couples, you might be friends with the husband or the wife and they will tell you everything, <laughs> but they are not easy to live with either. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. complicated and you never hear the other side. So I wanted to show her vulnerability show her flaws inside of her marriage uh, and not say like, this is the bad side and this is the good side. I'm more interested in like the gray area with, you know, understanding at one point and then no, hang on, they did something wrong, you know? 
But it's also an interesting portrayal of addiction because so often there's no discussion about the addictions people keep in secret. There's always this idea that in order to have an addiction or to have alcoholism, you have to be so out of control that you can't have your life together, that it can't possibly be something that is a problem if you're hiding it. So as long as you're successfully hiding it, it's nothing that needs to be confronted. And so I really enjoyed that aspect of this film as well. Yeah, we talked a lot about that while in rehearsals with Samira uh, early on, because I kept on telling her, like, think of this as a stage as uh, just before becoming an alcoholic. You know, like she's on the slippery slope started the habit, but I wouldn't call it a full-blown alcoholism because that's harder to treat. That's harder to uh, get out of that easily as well in terms of story. But also, uh, I didn't feel equipped to talk about that as much, you Mm -hmm. know, which helps her stay operating, right? Stay going to work, stay doing the the minimum, (laughs) you know? without that habit uh, obstructing her life so much. But we, as a, I mean, in general, as an Arab society, and speaking in very general terms here, but we have the mentality of if it's hidden, then it's almost not happening. You know, mm-hmm. if nobody knows about it, then that's it. Uh, we don't have to treat it. And I thought that was... Uh, something that I wanted to explore with Selma's character because she sort of put the lid on this and, and contained it as long as it doesn't get out of control. I also find the contrasts between Salma and Lamia as characters so fascinating because you have Salma, who's a very traditional Muslim woman, and Lamia, who has all of these very Western concepts of dress and kind of flaunting herself in a very not, shall we say, traditional way. (laughs) I wondered if if there was... Yeah, not shy at all. So (laughs) I wondered if there was anything particular that you were trying to show with these two women. Yeah, sure, of course. So I, uh, from a story standpoint, I don't want two characters serving the same uh, purpose. So I needed them to be as different as possible. And that would give me more drama. That would give me more uh, friction because they do not understand each other at all. Like, how would they? Uh, I found, and just getting feedback from people that they... Although Selma might be the more traditional conservative, people are relating way more to her (laughs) in the film than Lemia, who is supposedly more relevant, you know, more familiar, let's say, in terms of look and attitude and the way she speaks. You know, you just reminded me, I had uh, the first uh, first AD was an American uh, Taiwanese friend of mine. And... uh, she was like, I find it weird that the fancy one, the Lemia one, is speaking English. Like, she's like, we're not used to that for English to be the fancy thing. Like, people throw yeah. French. <laughs> yeah. Know, you know? yeah. Yeah. And that was very, because I was not totally 
aware of that growing up in Jordan, you know, people speak English as a, I don't know, social commodity to credit, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? They, they yeah. consider it as, oh, I'm bilingual, so I'm, it's great. Whereas to other people, it might not be that impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's very true. In American society, throwing in your English in such a casual way is not actually anywhere near as impressive as French or Latin. Those are the languages we use in America to signal, oh, I have education. I'm important. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're very, very different characters, Lamia and, and Rania. And that was really fun on set playing with that and trying to maintain a balance that would be believable because it could be a very slippery slope of turning the film into, you know, slapsticky or, yeah. or farce, you know? So yeah. it, it was tough to maintain that balance. Yeah. It's very well maintained, particularly because you're exploring so many different dichotomies among the women because they're all hiding secrets which obviously makes for a great film, but it's also just very realistic because we're all hiding secrets. And it's a beautiful kind of ode to the power of women in a lot of ways that you've managed to accomplish here. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to see complex women on screen and that they have multi-layers, multi-motivations. It's not like just the girlfriend or just the gold digger or just the, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's really beautiful to watch everything from the way that the women are at each other's throats in the beginning to the way they come together and make something beautiful in the end. And (laughs) I wanted to thank you so very much for this film and this interview. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for watching the film and uh, taking the time to talk to me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was really a joy to watch this film. It really is such a joy to see such fascinating representation of these women on screen. That's great. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at omnibus ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, 
where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. Thank you.